Don't call Pia Zadora a hoe. Radio Drome. It's Radio Drome. It's 1983. It's actually 2016, but we're going to be talking about 1983. I'm Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is Cecil, sometimes here, Trachtenberg. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. <laughs> Apparently, Skype and Canada aren't getting along tonight, so Peter's out because I guess the Canadians prayed to the wrong rainforest god or whatever that they do to get the internet up there. So sitting in for him is Frederick Fritz. Yes, and as it turns out, Xlax is not a good replacement for your sleep aid. You'll be up all night in the wrong direction. Yeah, the crap you have to put up with. Literally and figuratively. Yeah, I'm sorry, I was feeling a bit flush. Come on, that was straight to the bowl. I was just letting it flow. Push all that crap out. We better stop now. What well, you still have an audience? I think, yeah, I think everybody left at this point. So yeah, I'm thinking about leaving. <laughs> well, for those of you who didn't leave, you go to adamandeve.com. You, you go there and use the promo code DROME. You will get three free DVDs, 50% off of a single item, a free clit bumper, which I guess if you're getting it for jerk off doesn't really help, but it's a clit bumper, and free U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. Let's talk about 1983. Fred will have a different perspective on this because he's a little bit older than me. I was eight years old in 1983, so I remember seeing a lot of these movies that we're going to talk about either in the theater or on cable, while Cecil doesn't quite exist yet, correct? Well, no, I may or may not be one year old. I think it's fair to say you don't remember these movies first run, right? Uh, I saw them later. So I was 13. 1983 just what movies in 1983 jump out at you what are the defining movies because honestly this is a really great year for film but what ones what two or three jump out at you the two or three that that really jump out at me well obviously return of the jedi uh, i mean come on it's return of the jedi but aside from that i would probably go with uh war games a christmas story and believe it or not uh, a movie that's also impacted my love and fear of uh, the apocalypse, The Day After, which wasn't a theatrically released movie. It was the made-for-TV movie, but it got replayed uh, in syndication or whatnot, you know, and uh, wow, it just, it it's corny, like, because I watched it recently, again, aside from the actual nukes hitting the movie is is fairly silly. I don't want to say silly, but uh, overly dramatic. And but that like when the bombs hit, man, that's still really effective. The way that like people were basically evaporating, and so that scared the hell do, out of me. Do you know how effective that was when that first aired? That it was like you pointed out, it was a TV miniseries. You know, it was played over one night, but it was like four hours with commercials. There are no commercials after the bombs drop. Not a single advertiser wanted to have this depressing movie about people dying of radiation sickness after nukes fall in Ohio to be going, and now buy a Texas instrument calculator. <laughs> so there yeah, were no commercials after the bombs dropped. So it was kind of front loaded with commercials, which in retrospect is really creepier, I think. 
Well, as already stated, I, I was uh, 13 at the time, or, or should I say 13? This was post Raiders of the Lost Ark for me. So a lot of things, at least in the theater, adventure was everywhere. And it was really big for me. I really loved adventure films, and uh, or at least in that vein. And uh, so James Bond was a big thing with me. So this was the year of Octopussy. I saw that in the theater, at which at the time I was actually disappointed in. Now I actually rather love the movie. But I saw Black Stallion Returns in the theater, which is very different from the original Black Stallion. So Krull in the movie theater. Oh, I forgot Krull. Yeah, so Krull. And then I saw some really, I, I was uh, actually, we would take trips to Detroit from where we lived. I lived in a small town and we would tra take trips to Detroit. And I got to see two movies in 3D, which were out at that period. This is this is the year of uh, Metal Storm, right? I'm not getting this wrong. Metal Storm, the Destruction of Jared Sin. You got to yep. say the full title. Yeah, I saw I saw the, the Metal Storm, the Destruction of Jared Sin. I saw Space Hunter, uh, Adventures in the Forbidden Zone before you. Full title. Full, full, full title. And in the small town, I saw Jaws 3D here. So, but uh, those two, especially Space Hunter, I got a real soft spot for uh, for Space Hunter. Metal Storm's okay, but quite frankly, I just love Tim Thomerson in it, and the rest of it, eh, not so much. But yeah, that was a a year of adventure films and bizarre gimmicks were coming out. I mean, even James Bond was very different. The Octopussy, it was obviously trying to cash in on the Raiders craze. You know, Bond does that from time to time. It tries to go with what's ever hot, like Live and Let Die, you know, the black exploitation. And this film was obviously Raiders inspired, and yet it was very tongue in cheek. And now I, I kind of like the film. I think it's a lot of fun. But back then, after uh, For Your Eyes Only, I was really disappointed because that was such a serious spy movie. And then this was really glib and silly. But the other thing that sticks out for 83, and this is I only bring this up because of the other titles on this list. HBO was really big at this time when I was growing up. A lot of these movies from 83, I would actually see on HBO, you know, within a, about a year. So that's the stuff that really pops out to me. Oh, uh, one more. Th I got to see <laughs> Blue Thunder in the theater. My dad talked my mom into letting me go see that in the theater. And oh my gosh, did I freaking love that movie. See, for me, 1983, obviously Videodrome, that's, that's a given there, as well as Return of the Jedi. But the ones I remember were... Twilight Zone the movie, and no, I wasn't aware of all the controversy or Vic Morrow's death or anything at that point, but Twilight Zone the movie, Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, I saw that in 3D as well. The one that, that stands out to me, I didn't see it in the theater. Have either of you seen Strange Invaders with Nancy Allen? Oh, I love that movie. Yes. Paul Lamette. I haven't seen it in a very long time. Remember how the aliens, when they took their human skins, they just kind of peeled it off and there was like pieces on there. And then the people kind of curled up into little blue balls of light with their from their feet. That creeped the shit out of me in 83. And I remember not being able to sleep after, well, I can't remember if we watched this on HBO or rented it, but that movie creeped the shit out of me. Yeah, it looked like they were like ripping a cantaloupe right off their head and there was all that stringy goo. Yeah. And yeah, they had those exactly. tiny heads, and they had those tiny, great animatronic heads. Yeah. And then another one I remember, I'd actually forgotten about this movie for years, the John Saxon, Richard Hatch movie, Prisoners of the Lost Universe. <laughs> All I remembered was this movie with these guys with these glowing eyes and a giant pea shooter. I mean, literally, he loaded like these giant green balls into this, to this old style musket, and I remember Richard Hatch rappelling down a mountain using coaxial cable. That's all I remembered for years. And then 
I found out Prisoners of the Lost Universe, a fantastically fun, really stupid movie where John Saxon is a, is a villain in a Conan-type ripoff, but Richard Hatch is a cable repairman from our world, and it actually makes about as much sense when you see the movie. 1983 had a lot going for it. Obviously, everyone was prepping for Return of the Jedi. That was going to be the big boy that everyone was going to have to contend with. So you saw a lot of the smaller published, a lot of the smaller companies kind of bring up their kind of versions. Because you had science fiction was huge. I already brought up Strange Invaders. Why did you like Krull? I liked Krull because it was so ridiculously like stuffed with different ideas. It had so much creativity and so many things going for it. They had this new world that really was unlike anything that uh, had been done previously or quite since because they had uh, their own unique mythology. They had a castle that would teleport to different places around the world. They had these enemies that they couldn't exactly be defeated. They would just kind of fall apart and go underground. That scream when they died, that... Yeah! Oh my god, was that creepy. You know, the glaive was awesome. The firebrand horses were awesome. Or the fire were the fire mares, I think. Yeah, the fire mares were awesome. Like the so widow much. of the web? The widow of the web with that uh that stop motion animation, which made it even creepier. Just the the ideas and everything that they stuffed into this movie, they could have made uh ideas and concepts and originality than like five movies. They had like any one of those things could have been a movie unto itself, and yet they kind of pack all of this into one movie. And some people say that makes it a little disjointed and whatnot. But um I mean I would have liked it, it, it well, to have been a little bit longer. The movie is pretty episodic. It's we, we, we go and do this and then we go and do that. You know, it's it's very much like a D&D adventure, really. Absolutely. Yeah, I actually have the board game for it. And it, that's kind of the way it is. All right. You have to go to the, the widow of the web. You have to do this part. You have to do this part. And then you move to the center and then it's, you know, the end. Yeah. I mean, it, it does feel very uh, much like a D&D adventure with the way that uh, it's kind of placed out. You go and, you know, you're getting, you know, in this it's you're getting the epic weapon, which happens to be the glaive. Then he doesn't use it until the end. I think that kind of, I think the problem with that was he just got it a little too early, maybe like a half hour into the movie. So it's one of the first things that he does after that, you know, goes and, and gets Liam Neeson and then they all, you know, go and kick ass. But uh, it's still a, a really fun, unique, cool movie that uh, I don't think just ever got as much love as it deserved. Well, that's maybe because it was a monstrous bomb. It only lost $26 million at the box office. Oof. Yeah, it was a $40 million film that only made $14 million. So eh, it, it was it a major flop. It happens, man. I mean, there's a lot of really big movies that, you know, Dread, I love Dread, and Dread did terribly uh, in the theater. And it since has gotten a big fan base. And kind of the same with Krull. Krull has uh, been growing its audience over the years. See, my only problem watching Krull again as an adult is knowing that that's not Lizette Anthony's voice. Because I've seen Lizette Anthony in Dark Shadows and some other things, and she has a thick French accent. They were afraid of her French accent, so they dubbed her with an American actress. And that voice is just so wrong to see coming out of Lizette Anthony's mouth. Yeah, and even even without knowing, it just doesn't match. Yeah, no. you're like, that voice, that face, those don't go together. No. Yeah, they panicked. It would be nice if, I mean, 
I, I know they wouldn't because the movie still wasn't a flop or still was a flop and they uh, have already put it on Blu-ray. But certain movies, like, you know, you know, she's she's saying the lines and then they dub them in with the other actress. It'd be really awesome if they released it with her original dialogue in there. Stuff like that. I mean, as silly as it is, uh, I would it would be a reason for me to buy it again. It is very disjointed. This is one of those movies that, like, as a kid, you like a lot and then you see it again later and the flaws are very apparent. Peter Hames has talked ad nauseum about the production nightmare of that film. But the thing that stands out for me the most will always be James Horner's score. Peter uh, Himes or Peter Yates? What did I say? I'm you, sorry. You said Peter Himes. Peter Yates is the director. I apologize, Peter Yates. Perfect movie to see as a child because you have all these components that can just make a child's imagination run wild. You know, you have this great weapon, the glaive. You have a a, a hero. You have, as as Cecil Dari said, the, the the fire mirrors, and you have this you know almost demonic evil force that has taken the princess. You know, years before we have like Mario and Zelda. <laughs> going to rescue him so it, it and you add that incredible incredible score by james horner which i wanted for years and years and years and it took a long time to get a copy of it it's still a fun movie and it's it's great to reminisce about i don't know what this generation would think of it though 1983 also had another weird thing going for it this was the year of stephen king movies you had cujo christine and the dead zone all coming out within months of each other all from Dino De Laurentiis, too, which was strange. It was like he was front-loading the year with Stephen King. And none of them were really all that good. Now, what? I, I didn't like... Okay, The Dead Zone is oh, is the best of the three. Cujo, I've never liked. And Christine, I have never understood the attraction of that You're one. You're insane. Christine is amazing. Hey, if you like it, Cecil, fine. I'm not saying it's a bad movie. I'm saying I didn't like it. I mean, that's like... I mean, Carpenter, like, nailed that one. That movie is so good. I guess 83 was when King, like, really blew up as far as, like, uh, popularity, and so they wanted to adapt everything. And, I mean, since then, they adapted so many of his books and uh, into TV, you know, shows and movies and miniseries and this, that, and the other thing. I guess this is kind of was more or less the when it really took off. Uh, Cujo has its strong points but it's um it i don't know it it probably could have been done better i haven't seen that one out of all of them i haven't seen that one in a while so uh i can't say exactly i, I would like to watch it again i know they just re-released like two different versions of it i like the dead zone a lot i mean christopher walken really helps to make a movie even creepier and then the, the actually teams... actually i'll say martin sheen is why you watch dead zone Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Martin Sheen is because Greg Stilson is such a scumbag in that. And this is something that happened years later. But the Dead Zone TV series was outstanding. I really love that show. Well, the first two seasons. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. The first two seasons, but um, but still, you know, I mean, worth checking out. Uh, you know that. And then uh, Christine, just ah, oh, the the effects of the car just rebuilding itself, and uh, the story was done really well. The cast was really strong. The score, or not the score, but the soundtrack was great. With uh, oh, God, now I just all those fifties tunes. All those fifties tunes, and then ending with Bad to the Bone. 
it really worked. It was such a good movie. It was just really well shot. I, I, I've seen it a bunch of times and I, I always love it. I think it's just a great movie. And uh, God, I can't even fathom thinking that it's on it's it's just an enjoyable movie to be fair it's not something i i really think much about in all honesty uh 83 as maybe i'll get a chance to bring up there's something else that stands out way more for me from 83 uh stephen king was like outside of christine i really loved christine it had a very big impact on me i was already loving carpenter's work but i i I loved christine i still love christine so of the group you've mentioned that's my favorite Cujo. I don't remember well enough. I remember enjoying it being a little weird in a couple of parts. Weird as in like awkward is a better word. And Dead Zone, I didn't like back then. I thought it had great acting performances, but I don't know if it completely was cohesive enough as a film. I'm not sure it really sold its premise well. To me, I think Dead Zone actually works better today because let's face it, Donald Trump is Greg Stilson. Well, 1983 was also the year of technology. Because you have quite a few movies that are about technology. You've got Brainstorm, another Christopher Walken film. You've got Videodrome. You've got War Games. You have the Bishop of Battle segment of Nightmares, which we'll get into in a little bit. So you had this also this weird thing of kind of technology running awry. And in all honesty, now I haven't seen Brainstorm in 25 or 30 years. I remember Brainstorm and Videodrome having a lot of thematic similarities technology changing the person and their mind being altered by video signals. Is it weird that 83 had two movies completely disconnected from one another that were very thematically the same, probably more so today than they were in 83? Well, uh, this is going to be a little harder to say. I mean, there are similarities somewhat. I think Videodrome really is more about of a a changing of the culture, you know, people themselves being altered by the mechanics of the machine, if you will, by the changing technology, the the moral compass was changing within the people, uh, the thought, you know, being able to be manipulated. Whereas I think Brainstorm takes the more positive route and says, hey, look what this technology could show us about ourselves, where we've been, where we're going. So perhaps they're just flip sides of the same coin one is the darker vision of of what's happening to humanity as the technology is outracing our ability to absorb it quite literally and figuratively in that movie and brainstorm is more of the positive view of discovering more about ourselves and where we come from and where we're going well but that was also this was also the year of video games because you got war games which other than technology, is still a really damn good film. And I actually like the, you know, old analog technology. But then you've got, I mean, Nightmares was an anthology film. Really, the only one of the segments anyone remembers at all is Emilio Estevez and the Bishop of Battle, where, oh, you like video games? How do you like being in a video game? Cecil, I know you love the Bishop of Battle. Ah, I love the Bishop of Battle. I mean, Nightmares is... Really good. Uh, it's a, a really good anthology. Um, I love the uh, the there was the one with Lance Henriksen that was really good where uh, it was it was him, you know, testing his faith. Uh, there was the one. Uh, oh, wait, now I'm mixing up. I'm thinking a cat's I, eye there. I was about to no, say I was, was going to say Lance Henriksen is the one with the giant rat in the in the church. Oh. 
No, no. no? Lance Henriksen fights a demonic truck a la the car. Oh, right. that's right. The rat is a... It's been a long time since I've seen this one, too. And then I started going into the rat thinking the end of the last uh, Cat's Eye. But no, uh, I think that uh, the the Lance Henriksen one is so strong because Lance Henriksen is just an amazing actor and he makes anything work. But the Bishop of Battle segment is just so memorable. They use the uh, the the animation, and uh, you had uh, Emilio, a young Emilio Estevez breaking into the arcade so he can play this video game, and then he has to fight the game in reality. It's awesome. It was so cool, and uh, I really love that. But so I think that's what it is. It's that you had one segment of an anthology that was so much stronger than everything else and it was so much more memorable it, it just overshadowed everything else around it i think it was the second segment too so because the first segment of nightmares was admittingly pretty weak it was the whole you know there's a killer in the back seat of your car Ooh, it was really bland story that had been told a hundred times so it didn't start off this anthology film well and then bishop of battle hits its peak and it just kind of evens out after that you know yeah, maybe Bishop of Battle might have been better as like the last segment or something. Uh, but then you had War Games, which it, it's funny going back and reading old reviews from 1983. You got to remember, computers were still so alien and they were almost science fiction. Most of what happens in that movie actually could have happened, you know, if the circumstances were right with the technology and whatnot. To your average person on the street who didn't know what a computer was or the internet or what that nee, 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 when he dials onto the phone and all that, this thing was a pure science fiction movie. Is it weird that War Games is more, more meaningful in 2016 than it was in 1983? Also now, uh, hackers is more of a commonly known thing. I mean, we didn't quite understand it. And I thought that they did a really good job of explaining it to like the layman, you know, okay, you know, here is what he's doing. Uh, and they started off with something small to kind of explain it uh, to the audience. It was like, okay, here's this kid. He's going to hack into his school's computer system and change his grade. And so it's like, okay, that you know, that kind of sets up an understanding of what he can do. And so that later on in the movie, when he hacks into the government uh, facility accidentally and ends up, um, you know, hooking up with uh, Joshua. Shall we play a game? That, like, when you talk about movies and various quotes and whatnot, like that's in, like, probably, I would say, top 20 all-time greatest you know, movie quotes. That's right up there with, you know, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. You know, shall we play a game? Just, and, and you, you know, I mean, of course you have to say it with it, shall we play a game? You know, and it just, it was so foreign. I mean, now you have uh, Siri and whatnot that can talk to you in a voice that uh, is very close to sounding like a person. But back then it had that still robotic-y voice and it just was foreign enough. But yeah, I think a lot of people, when they saw it, they weren't completely buying that this was something that was feasible. And now it's like, yeah, that, that could probably happen. Well, the thing about technology always is there's where technology actually is at the time period and where the public is as far as being informed where technology is. And War Games is an example of that. We look at it today because we are so much further along, but of course technology could be even further along than we know publicly. There's a lot of BS in war games too, to be fair. 
especially back then since, you know, a lot of these computers weren't online with each other 24-7, you know. So uh, there's some fudging of it, but it was a fun movie, and I think that's what the, the biggest takeaway from it is. It's, it's, it's an interesting film that has, uh, has something to say again about where we're going, and if we're not careful, what could happen? Well, this was also the year of, we talked a little bit about Adventures in, Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, and Metal Storm being 3D, there were two other big 3D movies that came out this year, both of which bombed hard. Jaws 3D, which Cecil and I have already gone into great detail, but also Amityville 3D. The 3D in Amityville wasn't very good. Amityville 3D pissed me off more than any other, specifically for the reason that the first 10 minutes are so good, so brilliant, and so unique that it pissed me off that the rest of the movie is so f***ing bad. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll save Simon 1. Amityville 3 is garbage. I don't even really want to talk about it. It's crap. It's just crap. There's I have nothing positive to say. Jaws 3D, however, is, is not the most unwatchable movie. There's a lot of good in that film. The effects are absolutely awful. <laughs> and it adds a weird charm to the movie, especially when you see like how rubber... The shark looks in it, and I mean seriously, you can see the like it creasing as the fin fin is going back and forth, and terrible, terrible effects. But it's actually a fairly entertaining movie. The characters are likable. It's not the worst thing ever, and it's it's a lot of fun. And the 3D was okay. It's just the effects were so bad that it's. I mean, I guess on 3D level, maybe it was on par with uh, Metal Storm. <laughs> Jaws three is wonderful it's so corny and silly and just like the first like jaws one is amazing jaws two somehow manages to still distill a lot of the same plot points but ends up making it entertaining it works it's a sequel that does almost uh it feels like a genuine continuation but uh still ends up uh you know being its own thing jaws 3 is just ludicrous you've got you know the shark hitting the glass and the glass shards flying out at the audience you've got the inside the mouth shot of the jaw of the shark chewing on the guy just absurd and I really, really enjoy it. It's nowhere near uh, the quality of the first two, but it is highly entertaining. It is, and there were some other really entertaining movies that came out in 83 that often get overlooked. For instance, you have The Hunger, The Hunger by Tony Scott. Now, I'm weird on The Hunger. I, I think it's an amazing film that's also a terrible film. It looks gorgeous. It's a 90-minute long music video, and I say that in the positive. The soundtrack is used brilliantly, the editing, the lighting. Problem is, there's only 20 minutes of story in this 90-minute movie. So The Hunger, to me, really sucks as a movie, but it's great as a 90-minute piece of performance art. Again, I feel weird. I, I don't have much to say on The Hunger. I never liked it. It's a beautiful-looking movie. I'll never sit down and watch it again. Well, but then you've got weird movies like Liquid Sky came out this year. Sleepaway Camp, we're not going to go into that because we did a whole retrospective. Sleepaway Camp is 83. You've also got Testament, the post-apocalyptic movie coming out. You've got the awesome Robert Forster vigilante walking the edge from Charles Band. Metal Storm, as we talked about. We've got your Hunter from the Future. Ah! Thoroughly underrated at Extro. you got 2019 after the fall of New York. 
more entertaining than it should be, overdrawn at the Memory Bank, Mortuary, Scalps, House of Long Shadows, Soul Survivor, Chained Heat, Raiders of Atlantis. You're saying 2019 is lower end? It's, uh, it's a drive-in movie, yes. Parsifal is awesome. Come on. I, I, no, I keyed. Um, I, I love that movie. I did an episode on that. I figured uh, you'd go Gaga over your. Oh, and your, well, your, unfortunately, I, uh, I like your a lot. Your is just so ridiculous and entertaining and 50 gajillion plots that they kind of threw into one movie that doesn't make any sense because I think we talked about your before about what wasn't it supposed wasn't it like a five hour? Yeah, it, it, it was. Well, it was a four, 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 hour, four hour, four hours with commercials, miniseries in Italy. So yeah, you're missing about two hours of content. That's why the plot is so nonsensical. No, no you're not. I've seen it. I love your. Yours is one of my favorite movies, and I can tell you, you are not missing a thing. Well, okay, you're still missing all that footage. It might not help at all, but the footage is still, there's two hours of footage you didn't see. Yes, if you adore watching Red Brown run even more from Mesa to Mesa, the majority of that runtime is actually because in each opening of like a miniseries, you had the opening happens again, and the credits happen again, and the rest of it is pure padding. Uh, There's maybe one significant thing that happens between two characters the re- i'm not kidding even it was the biggest waste of time ever stick with the edited version it's way better wow yeah way better and i'm a huge antonio margaretti fan uh, so i'm you know it's this edit is much better that we have that's rare to say the other it's pure padding liquid sky was a movie that um I, the guy at the video store wouldn't rent to me because he he kept saying it was a hard R movie and uh, like because I had gotten R rated movies from them before, but he just refused to rent that to me. And I ended up I don't remember how old I was, but I ended up getting my sister to get it for me. And I watched it and I'm like, I don't understand any of this. <laughs> and, you're not and, supposed to kind of like your it doesn't really help if you're older. It still doesn't make any sense. Well, no, your your made sense in like its own way. Liquid Sky still doesn't make any sense so i just kind of sat there and and stared at the screen like like uh beavis and butthead that uh you know and uh and that was recent i saw it not terribly long ago and i still am confused by it extra uh i've isn't there's three extras now right extra technically Right, but but yeah, well, Extro Three has nothing to do with the first two. The second one's an actual sequel. Extro Three was just an alien movie that was called Watch the Skies, and the distributor was like, "Hey, we have the rights to Extro, so now it's Extro Three. Watch the Skies." Right. Okay. So I have uh, I have seen all three of them, and uh, they're all good in their own weird way. Uh, Extro One is more, for lack of a better word, existential. Like it's not quite the alien movie that a lot of people would think it it's is. It's not the alien movie the cover promised me, I'll tell you that. No, not at all. That just goes to show right there, you really, you know, the old, you shouldn't uh, judge a book by its cover. But uh, this, you shouldn't judge it at all, because that, what's there does not show up in the movie. But I like the extra movies, even the third one. But even though it's not, it's even though it's technically not really an extra movie, but uh, I enjoy all of them. They're in, in different ways. I want to point out that for me, films like those especially were really much later for me, Uh, not just because I saw them, but 
I liked weird movies. I've always liked weird movies, but Liquid Sky, eh, not really. Extro is definitely imaginative, especially for the time period. For me, I came from a very different place back then, and one of the things that stands out for me more in 83 was how weird the comedies were, like how freaking insanely bizarre they were. And, you know, you're talking about Extro and Liquid Sky, and it's funny, I'm looking at all these movies we're listening, and some of them are really fin weird. I mean, seriously, if you look at these, like Rock and Rule came out that same year. What a weird animated film of unknown origin. A second movie where a guy battles a rat, a giant rat. That was a thing. Strange Invaders. Well, it's Peter Weller. Yeah, it's Peter Weller. And well, Nightmares had the battling the rat. And that was Richard Mauser and that with his family. Right. That yeah. was the other that was the other story. Right. And it's it was a really messed up year. And the thing that really pops for me was the comedies just insane get crazy dc cab dr detroit and even to a smaller degree but still a weird movie valley girl these comedies were loopy man get crazy especially i love that movie and if if you guys haven't seen it track it down i think there's a, a copy of it on youtube if you've never seen this movie or heard of it you've got to it's like a spiritual sister to rock and roll high school because they kind of made it on a high after Rock and Roll High School, and I think that's also literal and figurative about making it on a high. It li It's one of the few comedies that lives up to its name. It is insane, it is loopy, it is weird, and d come on, Dr. Detroit, guys. No, I, I, actually, I have to say, if we're going comedies, I think the best one would probably be Trading Places, but the most insane one is Strange yeah. Brew. Oh, oh perfect yeah. yeah see that's what i mean it's I'm, i don't mean to i'm not trying to divert this con it's just i have nothing to add over there you know what i mean and you want to talk insane the comedies were just as weird and strange brew is a perfect example strange hey. brew is fantastic it Love is it. so funny space hosers <laughs> everything in that movie is hilarious the only part that I find disturbing is that their dad is Yosemite Sam. I mean, I, I know it's just Mel Blanc doing mm. the voice, but he does the Yosemite Sam voice. So essentially their dad is Yosemite Sam as a Canadian. That's just f***ing weird. And disturbing when Rick Moranis and Dave play their mother, own mother and father, and you see the scene of them humping <laughs> with Mel Blanc's voice over it. Get out! Take off, eh? It's, oh... <laughs> that, that's that's something I'm still, you know, seeking therapy over. There were two really big exploitation movies that came out this year that we got to talk about. Now, one would be one that I'm not going to talk about would be Psycho 2 because we did a whole retrospective on that. But the two big ones are Return of the Jedi and Twilight Zone the movie. Each one was big for its own reason. Star Wars could not have been bigger. For its time, Return of the Jedi had the biggest return of any of the Star Wars movies. Star Wars could not have been hotter. But then you've got Twilight Zone, the movie, which in itself, good God, George Miller's segment, that fucking demon on the plane still gives me goosebumps today. That thing is so creepy. That is one of the few times a remake is way better than the original. You can't overlook the whole murder angle. John Landis and Steven Spielberg were indicted for manslaughter for killing Vic Morrow. That's why that movie was so famous. Well, Vic Morrow and two kids. And two kids, right. But they were indicted. They both got off, which I think is bullshit, because if you read the transcripts or know anything about the trial, they were so guilty. But for whatever reason, they're famous, so they, they, don't, they, get, a, oh, they get a pass on that. To me, John Landis will always be a murderer. But 
Twilight Zone the movie, taking that aside, the opening segment with Dan Aykroyd is really good. The George Miller segment is really good. Joe Dante's segment is wishy-washy because the parts of it that work work amazingly and the other parts that don't fall flat on their face. But, oh my God, does Steven Spielberg's segment fall so flat and dull. And the Vic Morrow segment, you can't even really judge because it was never completed. It was just sort of, it just sort of ends because of his death. Which one was the Spielberg segment? Kick the can. Oh, with the Scatman God. Brothers. Uh, you know, like that, uh, I, I know that it didn't come out until years later, but the kick the can segment always felt like a, an episode of Amazing Stories. Cause Absolutely. I consider that the unofficial pilot for Amazing Stories, really. Yeah. I mean, it's not bad, but I mean, it's not really a Twilight Zone. Like the, the creepy uh, kid that, uh, you know, uh, don't don't think anything bad. Don't think, any, you know, like that, because that was the Dante segment, right? Yeah. Which is essentially yeah. a live action Looney Tunes episode, really. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even with the when when he opens the um, the the jack in the box and the big rabbit thing comes out, you know, like it absolutely is a live action Looney Tunes it's terrific. Like, I like that one. Uh, you know, there's something on the wing of the plane is is fantastic. The Vic Morrow uh, segment, which is is terrific. It is unfortunately sad. I am of the camp of I think that it was very um, unfortunate for Landis to like overlook all of the stuff and really uh I don't look at him as like a murderer. I look at him as like an accident. It was an accident. Like he he did neglect a lot of things. But back then, a lot. I mean, if you you know you've been on on film sets, sometimes you know things kind of fly a little loosey goosey. No, no, and- no. Because see, in this case, and this is what came out in court, the helicopter pilot told them because they were, they were shooting in an enclosed space so the helicopter oh, I know the helicopter pilot told them he told them you cannot put these flame pots so close to my tail rotor and landis said we won't do it and then he told the effects guys to do it anyway because it'll look great then the helicopter crashes and kills three people and then he's like shit so no i, I consider him he deliberately ignored safety so it would look better on camera he was told what would happen and thought nah i'm famous that's not going to happen to me But what I'm saying is that and it doesn't make it right. But a lot of times when you're when you're doing stuff like that now, granted, on the plus side, though, as horrible as that was, it did create a new um, set of laws and restrictions and things. So, I mean, as horrible as it is. You know, three people died. Uh, it could, in essence, have. I mean, and I'm, I'm not praising him for this, but a screw up like this that killed people, that killed three people, could have, in essence, saved a lot of people's lives in the future because they implemented a lot of. Okay, now we have to put these kinds of restrictions in, and we have to do this kind of stuff and make sure that uh, this kind of thing doesn't happen again. So um, I I don't know. I'm not saying that what he did was right. I'm not saying that he should have gotten away with it, but it's not like going up and shooting someone and killing them. This was like taking your eye. This was, I, I don't know. It was, it was a stupid thing to do that end up killing three people. But I don't consider him the same as, I don't consider it somebody like going up and, and purposefully, like he didn't purposefully kill them. He was not doing this with the intent of killing people. I, I consider him a murderer the same way that Vince Neal is a murderer. By getting dr- drunk and hitting two people with his car, he's a murderer even if he didn't intend to. That I 
John Landis and Vince Neil of Motley Crue are both murderers to me. Well, I think what the term we're looking for here is uh, criminal negligence. And, yes. And that's without a doubt. Uh, I've also read the transcripts from back then because I remember even Premier Magazine did a whole thing on this. And th- I mean, this was on every channel. It was on CNN. And there was also the fact that children were working uh, after hours, too. It was night. They weren't even supposed to be on the set. So it's there's a lot of components to this. And there's no doubt he's guilty of criminal negligence. Um, but that aside to the movie, really can't add too much. You know, the Vic Morrow one's interesting because... Uh, the ending was he was redeemed. He was saving these two Vietnamese children in the storyline. That's that's what he was doing. His character was changing at this point in the story, and he was not seeing their skin or their look any longer. And like he goes and saves the children, and he was going to be redeemed in it. And of course, they don't have that footage, so it now ends with a shot from earlier because that's why he goes back to Nazi Germany. If you notice, like he starts in Nazi Germany and then goes through several other periods, and then ends up back in Nazi Germany at the end, and he's on a train heading to a concentration camp. Yeah, because the way it ends uh, now, it's mean almost, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it. I guess you could say, yeah, it has a message, but it it, it doesn't feel, it, it doesn't seem to work. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, it's like, hey, if you're mean and horrible, you're just mean and horrible things are going to happen to you from other people who are more powerful. It's like, well, wait, doesn't that contradict a little bit? <laughs> um but yeah, you can't judge that one properly. And Vic Merle was wonderful in it, so it would have been interesting to see the original ending. Kick the can's okay. It's it's not bad by any stretch. It's it's just so syrupy and sappy. It just pushes every button, you know, at the exact moment. Uh, for me, it's terror at twenty thousand feet though is is worth the price of admission. John Lithgow, the the whole sequence, the score by Jerry Goldsmith again. Uh, if you haven't figured it out, I love scores a lot, and the score to that segment alone is incredible just to listen to it without even watching the movie you can you can see the movie in your head and the paranoia that lithgow is going through because this was a remake of the one from the original twilight zone with william shatner and that one's fine the monster's silly as heck but the monster in this one is one of the creepiest it, things i've ever seen it, yeah and this one it's genuinely creepy it's weird it just works. It's really good. Personally, and... personally, what I, personally what I like about the demon in this one, or the the gremlin, whatever, is how it moves. It doesn't move normally. It, it, it it's hard to explain without seeing it, but it doesn't move like you expect it to. It kind of has this jittery because like when they were editing, they would take out like every third frame. So it seems to kind of like teleport a little bit, which really makes it off kilter with the lightning strikes too, you know? Yeah, and I know they did a lot of undercranking and overcranking for shots, so yeah. it never looked normal. They did it throughout, like every time they filmed it, they either undercranked it, overcranked it, removed frames. They used every trick in the handbook. There's even a quick shot when John Lithgow looks out the window and sees it, and it's 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 like a few frames long where his eyeballs bug out. Yeah, it's it's a great segment, and it it really is worth watching the movie just for that sequence. But then th- there were other movies that came out, non-genre films. Cecil will probably love the fact that BMX Bandits came out in '83. Oh God, a very young uh, Nicole Kidman. Her debut. Her day. De- oh, it was her debut. Wow, yeah, that was her film debut. Yeah, very uh, corny post-apocalyptic bike movie. The original Bad Boys where Clancy Brown eats a booger and then gets uh, beaten into submission with a pillowcase full of Coca-Cola. You got Blue Thunder that Fred already mentioned. You got DC Cab, which is plotless movie, but a lot of the individual segments work tremendously. Easy Money is a film I don't know why I like, but 
I don't know. For some because reason, I funny. like Easy Money, and I don't know why. It's such a terrible, stupid plot, but it's, I don't know. Rodney Dangerfield, Joe Pesci, and Tom Noonan just sell the shit out of it. It's funny. It's, it's back very when funny. comedies were funny. I mean, I know it sounds so, uh, you know, but but right now, like, I mean, right now we're getting a lot of good movies. There are, uh, you know, I'm enjoying the variety. Comedy seems to have kind of fallen the wayside. Like the stuff that it, it's like there are movies that come out that are mixed genres like Deadpool. Deadpool was like one of the funniest comedies I've seen in a while, but it's not specifically a comedy. Like movies that are sold specifically as comedies now aren't funny. The majority of them are terrible. I don't know if this is good or bad, but I think Mr. Mom's a legitimately funny film. National, love... Lam National Lampoon's Vacation is still a funny movie. You a know? Vacation was this year? Yep. National oh, Lampoon's Vacation. Vacation is hilarious. It's Okay, Vacation is kind of like Krull. It's very episodic, and certain episodes don't work, but the ones that do are amazing. I think two of... The most subversive jokes are both in the in the Eddie segment. The daughter is like, my dad says I'm the best kisser in my class. <laughs> or um, when when Rusty's asking about, do you have like, you know, Pac-Man? Nope. Space Invaders? Nope. Asteroids? No, my dad's got those so bad he can barely sit on the toilet. I mean, those shouldn't be funny, but they are. Uh, folks, the moose out front should have told you. I really enjoy that movie. Just the, the only part that I actually, I was sad because of the dog. But it's uh, I laughed hilarious. I laughed my <laughs> but, ass off at the but grandmother. But it's so funny, and it shouldn't be. Yeah, like I I laughed my ass off at the dead grandmother. But like, uh, but no, the dog. Oh. <laughs> you know, like. Do you know that's one of the few scenes that got actually censored by the MPAA that they had to go back and shoot it again. The dog, the dog joke, yeah, because originally when he gets pulled over and the cop get, there's a long line of blood down the whole road. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and we're all disgusting laughing at it. Oh, I wish they would have oh, kept it. Terrible. Oh, well, the, and then the uh the the whole thing with with him and uh and he keeps seeing Christy Brinkley and then uh he he he's at the picnic and he like he takes a bite out of the sandwich the dog pissed all over. Mm -hmm. it. Yeah, and and Chevy is selling like he's trying to be sexy to Brinkley, yeah, and he's just he sells that. This was also a big year for dramas. Dramas and uh, arguable action movies. I mean, you've got 10 to Midnight is a great Charles Bronson serial killer movie, kind of a serial killer, but a killer movie. But then you also have things such as Lords of Discipline with uh, with David Keith. Or what I always remember is, you mean Reese from The Terminator is a sadistic cadet? Yeah, Michael Bean is, even though he's got a small role, is just a sadistic prick in that. You've got Octopussy, as, as Fred brought up. you got Sam Peckinpah's Osterman Weekend with the Crossbow Killer, The Outsiders, Rumblefish, Scarface, Silkwood. Eric Roberts should have gotten a f***ing Oscar for Star 80. You've got Sudden Impact. You've got a lot of dramas coming out this year, and a lot of them get overlooked when people remember 1983. You know, I really got to watch Star 80 again. I, that's th There's so many of these that I haven't seen in so long. Although, sadly, I've seen Staying Alive more times than I probably should have. Yes, if you've seen that more than once, you've seen it more times than you probably should have. Star 80, I'm not taking anything away from Muriel Hemingway playing Dorothy Stratton. Eric Roberts steals that movie. 
Mm-hmm. He deserved an, at least an Oscar nomination for Star 80. It's a su- such an amazing performance. It, it, it was almost like his peak. I mean, Eric Roberts is great, but I don't know if he ever was Star 80 great again. I was trying to remember what year Pope of Greenwich Village was because I would disagree only to say that was also an incredible Eric Roberts performance. He took my thumbs, Charlie. Yeah, that that was a great performance. Um, as far as uh, the '83 dramas, it was a very good year. Silkwood's a really good movie. It's it's a solid good drama. Uh, one of my favorite drama, yeah, it's it's a drama comes from that year, and I still watch it to this day. And that's the right stuff, which is just an epic movie. It, yes. it, it seriously is an epic movie. And again, if you haven't seen it, I I literally say put an asterisk next to that one and you must see it it's it's an incredible film the cast is just second to none you know our boy lance henriksen's in it again and fred ward and scott glenn Wade, barbara Quaid. hershey ed harris uh, scott glenn it's it's just a great movie seriously i can't really pick on that one at all it it's wonderful and it's so funny the effects in it for that time period were wonderful and if you look how they did a lot of them it's 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 really funny by today's standards, and I, I love that movie so much. Uh, so good movies. Uh, it was a good period. It was back in the 80s. You know, we had a lot of variety, you know, comedy, horror, drama, well, and they I, were good. I, I want to talk about what I consider one of the most unique. It's kind of an exploitation film, kind of intentionally, but it's very mainstream films of the year that gets overlooked, and that's because of the last 20 minutes completely fall apart, is The Star Chamber, Peter Heim's Star Chamber. It's a movie that is very 1983 in how it's looking at the criminal justice system and crime in America. You guys have to remember what 1983 was like. Reagan had just gotten into office three years earlier, and this was the whole rise in crime and the crackdown on crime. And the Star Chamber was sort of kind of science fiction vigilante film, but the way Peter Hyams shot it, it feels like an art film that's also an exploitation film. It's kind of hard to to verbalize it. And until the last 20 minutes, which feel like they're in it from a completely different script, it's a fantastic movie if you can get over how ridiculously anticlimactic the ending is. It's a film that does not hold up now, I don't think. It, for the time period, seriously, that movie blew people away. And it was one of those films when they talked about critically acclaimed and something different. That film was brought up a lot. Especially, and I agree. the The last quarter of that film just turns so bizarre. It reminds me of something you'd get in a studio note, you know. The ending feels like a reshot ending. It feels it, like that was not the ending that the script had on it. I, I can't agree more. Uh, it, it really feels out of place for that film. The last time I watched it, it was so out of place. It was so bizarre. the The rest of the film is a a concentrated morality piece about the choices one makes. Like if you look at, I actually watched a trailer for this film. Just uh, was it the other day? Vigilante, the Robert Forster movie. You've got to see the trailer for this people. It's on YouTube. Seriously. It is the most pro vigilante, you know, just kill them all. Cause they'll get you, you know, if you don't get them first, seriously, the trailer is shocking. Like how blatant it is. The Star Chamber is that intelligent, intellectual discussion on the topic, whereas Vigilante is the brittle, you know, the brutal, gritty exploitation version. It's a much more intelligent, thoughtful look at the concept and definitely creepier up until, again, that last 
part, and it, it's a, it still holds up as far as performances, ideas. As a movie, I'm going to say not as much. M- Michael Douglas is a federal judge that's brought into a group run by Hal Holbrook of vigilantes who get the criminals that, that slip through the justice system. It's a real, like I said, until the last 20 minutes, it's a fantastic movie. But let's look at the 1983 box office. Shouldn't surprise anybody that Return of the Jedi was number one. Number two. What? Yeah, what? That, what? That movie. Number two was Terms of Endearment. Ugh. I like that movie. Yeah. Number three was Flashdance. Not a surprise. I knew that was a big hit. There's number my f- blah. <laughs> n- number four, I, w- I forgot Trading Places. As much as I like it, I forgot it was as, as big of a hit as it was. Then you had War Games, Octopussy, Sudden Impact, which would be the fourth Dirty Harry movie, Staying Alive. There you go, Cecil. Woo. Mr. Mom and Risky Business. And I also want to point out, and Cecil, this will go to last week's topic of uh, PG-13. There were more R-rated movies released theatrically in 1983 than any other year since the R rating was instituted. <laughs> so 1983 had more R-rated films than any other year up to 2016. That's kind of messed up on its own, isn't it? Well, it kind of shows where you know how the world was. Well, and then we got the Razzies. Worst Picture was won by The Lonely Lady... That should not be a surprise to anybody. It deserved it. Yes. Worst actor was Christopher Atkins in A Night in Heaven. Worst actress, Pia Zadora in Lonely Lady, because it really is a bad movie. <laughs> Worst supporting actor was Jim Neighbors in Stroker Ace. Worst supporting actress, uh, okay, Sybil Danning for Chained Heat and Hercules. Both that came out that year. Sybil Danning got Worst Supporting Actress for two movies. That That's kind of irritating, huh? Uh, worst director, Peter Sazday for Lonely Lady. Are you noticing a pattern here? Worst screenplay, The Lonely Lady. Wow. It's a, if you haven't seen it, Cecil, it's a really awful movie. No, I, I only uh, had heard about it just recently, actually. Fred, back me up. That's a t- that movie deserved its Razzies, didn't it? Oh, gosh. I, I, that's one of those movies it's almost hard to explain. I mean, it's in a weird sort of way, it's... It's like the sleazier version of Star 80, which <laughs> if you've seen wow. Star 80, you know that's a pretty amazing statement. And yet it doesn't uh, she have gets ra- half the heart. Well, she gets raped with a garden hose, and that's supposed to be a dramatic moment. Oh, jeez. And you're just, you're, just, you're just sitting there with your mouth agape going, oh my gosh. Because it, it doesn't come off as a dramatic moment. No. You get, the, you get the feeling it's supposed to, and you find yourself giggling... And you, then you kind of go, I really shouldn't be giggling at this. You'll hate yourself by the end of that movie. <laughs> and I bet after this episode comes out, a whole bunch of people are going to be looking for Lonely Lady on YouTube. <laughs> it's weird you should say that. When you were saying all this, I was thinking to myself, Josh, you do realize you're making people want to see it. <laughs> Unfortunately, I do realize that. So, Cecil, how would you sum up 1983? Was it a good year in film or... Was this one of the weaker years compared to how strong 81 and 82 have been? No, I think this is another strong year. Uh, I mean, with with uh, Scarface and Return of the Jedi and the Twilight Zone movie and Trading Places, Christmas Story, uh, just so many movies that uh, constantly end up on like best of lists for the year uh, for war games. Just yeah, like revolutionary, unique, good movies that uh, people still talk about and people still watch today. So definitely another strong year. 
I'm going to say exactly what you said. It's a very strong year, lots of diversity, lots of movies with very memorable quotes. I, I second what Cecil said earlier about the war games, and uh, so many of these movies have lines that have uh, stayed with uh, popular culture, and it's a weird year if you look at it as the whole, but it's a really great year, a very imaginative year. Like you guys pointed out, some movies that were probably not seen as iconic in 1983 have become that since. And you don't get that as much in the 90s, which we'll get to when we get to there. So, Cecil, where can we find you as you might have been alive in this year at this point? <laughs> you can find me at uh, escapistmagazine.com, goodbadflicks.com, uh, YouTube, look up Good Bad Flicks, and uh, Facebook and Twitter. Fred, where can people find you? Do you even have a site yet, or are you still doing the movie apocalypse thing? Well, I, that's, I'm not doing the movie apocalypse thing, but I that's the only thing I have is the Facebook movie apocalypse thing, as you said. Uh, there, there's going to be a new site. It's just when. Uh, that's all. Uh, there's a, I'm still trying to... I'm still rebuilding here, people, so you got to be patient. I'm getting a horror movie off the ground, so it's, it's not something you just do in a day. And you can find me at 1201beyond.com. You contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. And guys, if you do seek out Lonely Lady, email me at 1201beyond at gmail.com and let me know if we were right or if we're making light of hose rape. So that said, keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Don't call Pia Zadora a hoe.
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.